When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Seven. I'm Olivia Davies, standing in for Jamie today. In today's episode, we hear about how COVID could be shrinking your brain, why optimists live longer, and the first human footprint in Britain. But first... It was on this day in 1781 that William Herschel saw what he thinks is a comet. After several weeks of verification and consultation with other astronomers, it was later confirmed to be a new planet, eventually given the name Uranus. Seven. 107 years ago, explorer Ernest Shackleton had just begun the mission of a lifetime. Aboard the Endurance ship, with his crew of 27 plus a few extra stowaways, Ernest set out from the island of South Georgia with hopes of achieving the first land crossing of Antarctica. However, just two days in, the ship found itself stuck in the barrier of thick sea ice that surrounds the continent. The ship was eventually crushed by the ice and sank in 1915. Since then, the location of the sunken ship has been lost until it was discovered this past Saturday, which also coincidentally is the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's funeral. The project to find the lost ship used a South African icebreaker equipped with remotely operated underwater robots. Even though it's been sitting under three kilometres of water for over a century, it looks just like it did on that November day it went down. I knew that this was probably either the first or the second most strongly built ice ship ever. And uh, I was just in awe of her construction. And I thought if there's any wood-built ship that could survive the impact with the seabed, it would be the Endurance. And she did. She held together beautifully. That's marine archaeologist Menson Bound. He's on the Discovery Expedition and has now fulfilled a dream ambition in his nearly 50-year career. But her state of preservation is just absolutely brilliant. There are no wood-consuming marine parasites in the Weddell Sea. So, you know, the, the wood is, is, is as fresh as the day the ship went down. You can see her paintwork. You can see the bolts. You can see the ship's name, you know, Endurance, curved across her stern and beneath it, the, the, the great five-pointed star. You can sort of go over the taffrail. And, and what are you looking at? Well, you're looking at the ship's, ra- the ship's wheel. I mean, the ship's wheel is, is, is there just as they left it. Dan Snow, the historian and broadcaster, was also part of the expedition, joining a crew of researchers. Like his colleague Menson Bound, he too was absolutely buzzing from the find. Here he is talking to ABC News Australia. So we've found, just looking at what's on the surface, there's the ship's bell, there's crockery, some plates, there's a boot, a mysterious boot lying there on the, on the deck. Um, there's, there's, a, there's an instrument for measuring the depth, which looks like you could use it today. You can still see the figures on the, it's like a clock face showing the depth and, and it's perfect condition. Um, it is, it is a, 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 just a, it's a thing of beauty in itself, but I think more than that, it just will inspire anyone that sees it with a, with a passion for exploration, for adventure, for getting out there and finding lost things. As for the future of the ship? We're not allowed to touch it. So it's protected by the Antarctic Treaty. It's going to be left down there. We've done a survey. We haven't retrieved anything from it. We haven't fiddled with it. We haven't done anything to it at all. So it'll stay there. Maybe in 100 years' time, who knows? They might find a way to lift it and preserve it and everything. But for, for the moment, it stays 
where it lies. In the true spirit of the mission, the rediscovery project wasn't without its difficulties. We were in the Weddell Sea for a month. We were, going, we were moving up and down, we were surveying the seabed, the temperature was plummeting, we were brushing the snow off ourselves, and then we found it. With a few days left to go, we found it on the seabed. We'd started to give up hope, but there it was. And you know what's funny, because Shackleton's motto is, through endurance, we conquer. And they at the back endured. They endured everything. I, I, much, they had much harder than I did. They were working around the clock. They were in, working outdoors in the sub-zero temperatures, getting covered in water and sea spray, frost and snow. Uh, and they endured. They absolutely never gave up. And then sure enough, they conquered. COVID-19 can cause the brain to shrink and damage areas linked to memory and smell. That's according to a new study by Oxford University. Researchers investigated the brain changes in 785 people aged 51 to 81. Professor Gwenielle Duard from the University of Oxford was the paper's lead author, and she spoke to Bloomberg about what this study means. What is really different in this study is that we had mild participants who were not hospitalized, so they stayed at home. They were well enough, presumably, to stay at home, and some of them were even asymptomatic. So we're not seeing this kind of gross pathology that you would see in the, all of these other brain imaging studies that have focused on hospitalized patients. We're looking at much more subtle kind of differences here. And what did the study find? Very first thing is that greater, you know, uh, change in uh, the shrinkage of the brain, but also a greater cognitive decline. So what we um, see is really that um, there's a decline in uh, mental ability in being able to perform complex tasks in the participants who got infected. And what might this look like long term? We were quite surprised to see some clear differences in how the brain had changed in the participants who had become infected with SARS-CoV-2. But what is important is also to bear in mind that the brain is plastic and can heal itself, whether it's because the symptoms are, you know, slightly lessened and getting better or because um, the immune reactions or new information is uh, also going away or maybe the virus is getting cleared. Still to come on the Smart 7 Sunday, we get the lowdown on Apple's latest releases and we learn the formula to a scientifically perfect chip butty. This week, Apple held its peak performance event. In Apple's first event of 2022, Tim Cook and co took to the virtual stage to reveal what they've been working on behind the scenes. As expected, they announced some shiny new gadgets as well as some updates to fan faves. To get the inside scoop, we caught up with technology writer Chris Merriman who had all the details. So Chris, what were the big announcements and what are people most excited about? One of the biggest things is the iPhone SE, which is the stripped down plastic shelled budget version of the iPhone. For the first time, that is going to be released uh, in a 5G model, 
which will be really exciting for the people that actually do have access to 5G. The other noteworthy thing with that is they've used one of their A15 chips in it. Now, that is quite significant because it's exactly the same chip that's gone into the latest iPhone 13. So there's obviously, therefore, going to be a parity on performance in a way that perhaps there hasn't been in the past. If you want the regular iPhone, there was no big announcement, but the regular iPhone is coming in uh, green and the Pro version is coming in an Alpine green. I'm not quite sure what the difference between those two colours is, but those are the, that's the only real news on regular iPhones. Apple now make their own chips. A lot of people thought that they'd be announcing the M2, but instead they've announced the M1 Ultra, uh, which goes alongside the original M1, the M1 Pro and the M1 Max. Now, the M1 Ultra is basically two M1 Maxes smooshed together to make something twice as powerful rather than being anything new, which is probably why they haven't gone with uh, a new name. And the first product to use that is um, it's a new entry to the Mac market. It's the Mac Studio. Now, the Mac Studio, it's a box that sits on your desk, does most of the things that a MacBook Mini would do, but it's aimed towards creators, so it has outputs to XLR, which is what professional musicians use to connect to mixer boards or to amplifiers or whatever. So it's quite clearly uh, squarely aimed at music makers. So this was Apple's peak performance event. Does this suggest how Apple wants to focus itself in the next few years? And maybe are we looking towards more software over hardware? I don't think Apple are going to suddenly be yet another black rectangle maker. Um, they're, they're known for, for their style as well as uh, their technology. So I don't think they'll want to mess with that formula. But because they've taken the technology in-house, the direction of travel seems to be towards performance and making these chips faster and better because there hasn't been a massive, massive sea change in terms of particularly phones for a long time. There are always lots of rumours and speculations about what will be shown at these Apple events. Was there anything that you were hoping to see but didn't quite make it to the stage? One of the nice things with Apple events is usually you can be guaranteed that they'll announce the new version of iOS, the operating system, and that means that everybody, whether they're buying something or not, gets something new because they'll get an upgrade. Um, so there was a lot of ex expectation there'd be an announcement of iOS 15.4, and in actual fact that didn't happen, so we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for that. The UK may not be globally renowned for its fine culinary delights, but the humble chip butty is a beloved snack that's been enjoyed in Britain for well over a century. With a little nudge from supermarket chain Iceland, James Hind, a scientist from Nottingham Trent University, has now found the formula for creating the perfect chip butty. We looked at the responses of 2,000 people all over the UK and tried to find out what made the chip butty special for them. And then we broke it down by region. I looked at all the commonalities. I tried to draw out the factors that were most popular in the UK. I refined a couple of different recipes and I did some extensive focus 
took with my students who really enjoyed that aspect. And then I came up with the end result. With 2,000 responses on what consumers think makes the perfect chip butty, James discovered some interesting trends. I was amazed by how much people love, love ketchup. And I've since found out, we're speaking to friends and family, that I am in the minority. I tend to be a purist myself. I would just go for, for the bread, the butter, the chips, salt, vinegar, maybe brown sauce if I was feeling a bit fruity. Um, but ketchup is hugely popular. So I had to make sure that the equation accounted for people adding ketchup. Um, and I had to make sure that it accounted for butter. And of course, you've got to give more weighting to the butter. It's denser, it's typically colder. So I arrived at my formula, which I reckon guarantees that you're going to get that lovely so, the moment we've all been waiting for, what is the magic formula for the perfect chip butty? Okay, so the formula I came up with is to set the mass of chips at least equal to, so equal to or greater than three quarters the mass of the bread plus the mass of the ketchup plus three times the mass of the butter. And the importance here is that not only is butter denser and kept colder, but we're looking for a phase transition. We want this to move from solid to liquid. We've got to put in a bit of extra work to do that. And we need to balance the heat coming from the chips with the coolness of the bread and the rest. So what does that mean when it actually comes to constructing my perfect sandwich? How many chips am I going to need? Well, I settled on 12 if you're using thick cut chips and I base that on thick cut bread. So we're looking at bread being about 40 grams of ice. So that's 80 grams of bread in total. So you're looking at at least 60 grams of chips and you're going to have to add more to account for your taste in sauces and so on. So what I really want to come from this is that people start to experiment. I want people to take it seriously rather than just winging it and throwing in some chips. Don't do that. Don't settle for a sub-optimal chip butty. Experiment, try with different chips, start weighing things out, start timing things precisely and see, and see if you can come up with something that beats my formula. Still to come on the Smart 7 Sunday, how optimists live longer, healthier lives, and we take a look at the earliest evidence of humans in Britain, right after this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Whilst no one is immune to the ups and downs of life, established research shows that people who have a rosy outlook on the world tend to live longer, healthier and happier lives. With a new study led by Dr. Louina Lee, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University, scientists now think that this is because optimists actually have less stress to cope with in the first place. In this study, we followed 233 older men who were taking part in a larger study of aging. And at the beginning of our study, they completed a survey measure of optimism 
And then 14 or more years later, they reported their daily stressors along with positive and negative mood on eight consecutive nights at several data collection waves. So then we considered the association of optimism with how frequently they encountered daily stressors and their mood on the days with versus without the stressors while accounting for their age, education, and their marital status. We found that more versus less optimistic men did not differ in how they emotionally reacted to or recovered from those daily stressors. However, the more optimistic men reported not only lower negative mood, but also more positive mood. So beyond simply not feeling negative. And they also reported having fewer daily stressors. And that explained their lower levels of negative mood, but that did not explain their more positive mood. Do you know exactly how optimists minimize their levels of stress? That's a good question. We don't fully understand why. Um, We know that, for example, more optimistic men in general encountered fewer stressors, like they reported having fewer stressors, which explains their more favorable emotional well-being. So I think that's an interesting distinction in our study and a little bit of an unexpected finding for us. So it wasn't their emotional reaction per se, but kind of how um, their exposure to or kind of what they perceive as being stressful um, that made a difference in their emotional well-being. So this analysis only involved men. Do you think the results would be different for women? That's a great question. In terms of women, we have not really seen, say, gender differences in the association of optimism with health outcomes. So um, for I would expect our outcomes or our, the, our findings to hold up um, when we look at older women. But of course, we have to test that um, explicitly. Um, I'm actually really curious about age differences. Um, and so I, I don't really know um, if the findings would replicate in younger adults. And we definitely want to um, test that. So for all the pessimists out there, how is this research helpful for them? How can they change their ways and reap the rewards of being an optimist? People are always kind of curious, you know, is optimism kind of like this stable characteristic or is it kind of modifiable? And evidence from randomized clinical trials actually have told us that interventions, you know, like identifying your goals and then imagining a future where everything has turned out well and that your goals have been reached or even more intensive cognitive behavioral therapy can actually increase levels of optimism. Um, And so I I would say, you know, perhaps working on cultivating more positive or more flexible, balanced ways of approaching situations or interpretations of events. If you've spent any time down under, then you've likely heard of the funnel web spider. Sydney's funnel web is one of the world's deadliest spiders, but one researcher is on a mission to understand them better. Caitlin Creek, a PhD candidate at the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales, has been tracking the male funnel spider for two summers. I'd love to see if we have things affecting their movement like humidity or rain, because we often hear in the media, um, when it rains, the funnel webs come out. Uh, But we don't actually have any data to support that. Um, Yes, we may see them more, but it could just be a coincidence with the mating season that they have. So very curious to look into that. It's also pretty cool to see how far these boys can travel in one night. 
to track them, the spider is first sedated and a little electronic tracker is attached to its back. Then, the eight-legged creature is released back into the wild. I mean, every Sydney side has probably had an experience with a huntsman running across their car windscreen, which is always a bit of a shock to the system, but but why, why are they doing that? Like, in my opinion, I think we're, we're with them all the time. We might as well try and coexist, and to do that, we need to know more about them. on a beach might not sound out of the ordinary, but a set uncovered by a storm on the Norfolk coast in 2013 was certainly something special. In Haysborough in Norfolk, part of a million-year-old geological formation lies partially exposed. It's a portal through time. Mammoth, hippo and even hyena fossils have been discovered there. In 2000, a flint hand axe was found at Haysborough, dating to around half a million years old. But that's not the most exciting thing ever found in Haysborough. That's David Waterhouse, Senior Curator of Natural History at Norfolk Museums. In 2013, after storms lashed the coastline, human footprints were discovered. To our astonishment, these trace fossils were 850 or 950,000 years old, making them the oldest human footprints ever found outside of Africa. They were scanned in great detail, recording them forever. Because the trace fossils were only semi-fossilised, they were washed away by the sea in only a matter of weeks. The footprints left in ancient estuary muds are direct evidence of the earliest known humans in Northern Europe. Dr Nick Ashton is an archaeologist at the British Museum and he too was absolutely astonished by the discovery. The footprints at Haysborough are truly an amazing archaeological find. They're without doubt the oldest human footprints in Europe and some of the oldest in the world. It really is a truly remarkable discovery. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. 